You're listening to Shade, the podcast where I chat to a wide community of creatives across disciplines, photographers, painters, writers, filmmakers, and even policymakers working within the media and beyond who have challenged the concepts of race and identity within their work. I'm Lou Menser, writer and photographer, and I've always wondered why people create the work that they do. This week, I chat with Michael Fuller, the former Chief Constable of Kent Police and Chief Inspector of the Crown Prosecution Service. He was the first ethnic minority Chief Constable in the UK and the first black officer of Chief Constable equivalent rank. His contribution was instrumental in the Stephen Lawrence case and the McPherson report. He has been creative in the methods in which he has challenged racism within the police service. We talk about his experiences as the only black constable in the early years and his ideas used in working with the community through the years of Trident and beyond and how he took his learnt tools of resistance and resilience from his childhood raised in a loving care home to his work within the criminal justice system. I was nine years old when the Brixton riots happened and I still remember it. The day before the riot, someone we knew at the time explained to me why they felt the need to riot and spelt out the racism that he and his peers were experiencing at the hands of the law. It was frightening for me as a nine-year-old to hear of their experiences. Then when they returned, I heard about what had happened to those involved and in truth, along with all the other experiences of living in a racially charged society, It started me down my own path into being aware of discrimination and learning to critique it. I think it was around 1994 that I was living in Brixton for the first time and it was then that I crossed paths on many occasions with Dark as Howe. I was 23 and exploring radical activism with groups such as the Ethiopian World Federation. We'd meet up weekly and their focus was making lives better for the local community but also their focus was repatriation. Now Darkus was basically the voice of Brixton, a tireless community activist. I'd run into him on Routon Road and when perhaps I was waiting on doorsteps for my friends to appear, he'd wait with me and chat away about his work. He'd pop up on the BBC as a spokesperson. Maybe I'd forget my keys and it would be Darkus who'd be there to help out. In the small hours, walking home from clubs, Darkus would be around making sure that we were getting home okay. When people I knew were on the receiving end of stop and search activities by the police, it was Darkus who helped us think clearly about what was going on. He died in 2017, but when I was researching this for this podcast, I found a scathing article by Darkus on Michael Fuller. It was written in 2003, and he said, dismissively, Why is it brave to appoint a black chief constable? He's been a good boy. In years gone by, I would have taken Darkus's words at face value, but by now I know enough about Michael Fuller and his work to know better. Michael Fuller has had a long and distinguished career in the police force. Starting as a cadet in 1975, he worked with a number of uniformed and CID uh, roles, as well as in senior positions in the Met. In 2004, he was appointed Chief Constable of Kent and became Britain's first ever black Chief Constable. 
In the same year, he received the Queen's Police Medal for Distinguished Police Service. In addition, Michael is a former Chief Inspector of the Crown Prosecution Service. During his 34 years in the force, he helped set up the Racial and Violent Crime Task Force and in response to criticism from the Met Police arising from the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, he drew up the Met Police Action Plan. His memoir, published in February this year, is entitled Kill the Black One First. It is essentially a story of belonging. In it, Michael reflects on his life growing up in care and his experiences facing racial and cultural barriers during his time in the police. He was the first ever black chief constable. He worked on cases that became political tipping points, specifically the Stephen Lawrence investigation and the Brixton riots, which are vividly etched into our national consciousness and have shaped our identity as people and as a country. Born to Windrush generation immigrants in 1959, Michael was taken into care when he was 18 months old. From an early age, his passion for policing was clear. Racism did nothing to temper his ambition, but when he found himself at the heart of the anger of the Brixton riots, he was forced to ask himself for the first time, which tribe do I belong? Michael says, As the UK draws ever closer to Brexit in 2019, my narrative questions what it means to belong and if you can ever truly identify with a group or an institution or a country which doesn't see you as one of its own. I'd like to challenge and enlighten readers who don't yet understand how it feels to be on the receiving end of mindless prejudice be it overt and abusive or of the more insidious hidden variety. Now, what struck me when reading Michael's memoir was the similarities between his own identity journey and that of people of mixed race. There are obvious complexities involved for white parents raising mixed race children or black children, such as Michael was raised by Auntie Margaret, the loving head of his care home. And for some parental figures, it will be the first time that discrimination has impacted their lives so viscerally. It's interesting to me that Auntie Margaret offered Michael such solid tools in dealing with discrimination. As a child, he was taught that when faced with racial discrimination, the best way to deal with it was to stop, process, and then decide the best way to react. This message resonated strongly throughout the book and has been a powerful guiding principle throughout his career. He talks about how he gained support from both John Grieve and Paul Condon and eventually the black community while setting up Trident. I can clearly remember going to clubs in Brixton and seeing those Trident stickers everywhere. It was a massive campaign. As Michael points out in this interview, it wasn't a PR exercise. There was a lot of work that they put into this and it was heartfelt and it was full of integrity. What I found particularly striking in this section of the book was his attempt to implement strategies needed to tackle institutional racism whilst facing racism himself within the police service. Here, one thing really stood out to me. He said, we have to compromise popularity for principles. Now we all know this, you know, how many of you have lost friends along the way because you're sticking to what you believe to be right? 
Earlier on in his career, his colleagues seemed to make it clear that they used the sus laws, the stop and search laws, against black suspects only. Understandably, the Brixton riots of 81 led him to question whether he could live by his ideals regarding justice while working within the police service. At the time, he was seen by the black community as the enemy. This strong disaffection among the black community demonstrated when a rioter shouted, kill the black one first. And then someone actually threw a petrol bomb at him. Cut to 1997 and the McPherson inquiry, the investigation into Stephen Lawrence's case was marred by a combination of professional incompetence, institutional racism and a failure of leadership. I found it so moving when he said that he was able to maintain his position in the police in part based on his quietism on the subject of racial abuse or maybe not so much quietism it's about taking stock of what's been said and then really giving some thought about the best way to deal with it the most effective way that must have been hard he's also been quoted as saying that the treatment of the lawrence family was appalling this episode is dedicated to Stephen and his family and the wonderful work of the Stephen Lawrence Trust in recognition of Stephen Lawrence Day. Now it's time for my interview with Michael. So enjoy, here goes. The title of your book, Kill the Black One First, refers to the abuse shouted at you by a rioter during the 1981 Brixton riots uh, shortly before a petrol bomb was thrown. Um, I'd like to start by quoting something that you said about writing this book and sharing your story with us all. Um, and it was you were quoted in the press release as saying that my narrative questions what it means to belong. I'd like to challenge readers who don't yet understand how it feels to be on the receiving end of mindless prejudice. Now, what's particularly resonated with me is the journey that you've had personally with your identity, as we all have, um, and also with your experience of institutional racism within the police service. Um, and there's lots of different examples of that within the book. But what I'm interested in is how has your journey of um, identity shaped your overall approach to your work? Um, and how did that change over time throughout your career in the police service? A big question. Mm. Um, I, I think that my journey has shaped me in I suppose being being uncompromising in, in terms of racism. So the racism is something that I've never condoned. And I always tried to tackle uh, racially motivated crime. And I was better able to do that as, as a police officer than if I hadn't been. So uh, because I, I had lots of empathy for the, the black um, uh, community in, in, in London. Mm. Um, I also had the advantage of having an insight in, into community issues, community concerns, 
mm. and knowing the impact of particularly racially motivated crime, the, the fact that if, if there's an attack on somebody who's from a minority, um, whether race is relevant, whether religious is relevant, whether it's their sexual orientation that's relevant, Mm. Uh, or other reasons it, it doesn't just impact on that one victim it mm. has an impact and creates fear amongst a whole community of people mm. which that minority member belongs so that that's something i know um because of my own sort of personal experience uh, mm. the 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 impact on on whole communities and how damaging and how fearful uh communities can become so that that's been an interesting insight the, the other thing is, I suppose, is trying to educate and discuss with people I work with, work colleagues, um, about in, issues like institutional racism mm. and trying to get them to, to, to understand that. And, it, and it's very hard when you're dealing with unintended prejudice. Mm. Uh, people find that, not surprisingly, very difficult to accept. Mm. Uh, if they're behaving in a prejudiced way, but it's unintended. Mm. Yeah, they they often see that as legitimate, okay, in a way that I I wouldn't see that as okay. Absolutely, and then the 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 work is not only to do the work on trying to explain to them how their behaviour um, is discriminatory, but um, but but then also doing the the work to to try and um, change that with them and to get them to see and that's that's quite an effort that's required yeah. to, to put in place isn't it when there's unconscious yeah. bias um, well, probably a, a good example is is the stat that existed when um i was involved in preparing the met response to the mcpherson report one one of the issues at the time was that black people eight times more likely to be stopped and mm. mixed race people as well They're eight times more likely to be stopped than white people they're uh, more likely to be um, charged with criminal offences, more likely to face sentences of imprisonment and more severe sentences of imprisonment. And um, there the were issues in relation to black officers where they, if they receive complaints, they're more likely to receive complaints from the public and more likely to face disciplinary sanctions. Now, all, all those things haven't changed, you know, and we're talking, you know, since the well, over 10 years, uh, mm -hmm. they, those, those stats ha haven't changed. And you'd say, well, why, why not? Mm. Um, aren't we better than that now? Mm. That if we're providing a service that is non-discriminatory, well, why, why do those stats still exist within the criminal justice system? Mm. And that's the question I've been asking, and, and a lot more people need to be asking the same question. The, the, the thing I would say is that the police service were always receptive Yes. to the thoughts, ideas, suggestions, recommendations mm. that I made, whether it's in relation to murder investigation, in relation to Stephen Lawrence's case, yes. um, whether it was in relation to the need to tackle racially motivated crime mm. and treat it like any other crime and tackle it in the mm. way we did other crime. I mean, all mm. those things were quite groundbreaking. Absolutely. But, you know, now they, they seem normal, but I mean, they, they, you know, one wonders whether they would have happened otherwise. Um, and, and I think, you know, change can be achieved from the inside, mm. you know, often more effectively because you're not seen as such a threat. Absolutely. One of the things I, I did recommend was having lay people involved in uh, formulating policy. Mm. So that you would ensure that that policy was non-discriminatory. 
Yes. Um, and, and by being non-discriminatory, we're, we're talking, um, you know, there was no suggestion with new policy that the organisation would intend any policy to be biased. But sometimes the, the effect of some policies um, are such that they create unconscious bias. You know, they can be unconsciously biased. Um, but at the time, you did receive support from uh, John Grieve and uh, Paul Condon, yes, and I yes. will talk a little bit later about that. But um, yeah, and if, if I hadn't received support from the top, then a lot of these changes wouldn't have happened. So there's no absolutely. question about that. And I was and, regularly being asked to um, provide ideas to people at the top of the studies. So the, the thing, the, the satisfying thing for me is that people were willing to listen. Mm. and take seriously the, the criticisms and the complaints I made about the, the way the service was running. And, that, and that's healthy. That's quite um, an unusual situation. It uh, is. It is. Isn't yes. it? Uh, it is, quite an yes. unusual and um, just thank goodness that that did happen. Resonating strongly throughout your book is, is your principle of stop process and then react yeah. as a response to discrimination. Do you have any other useful strategies or tactics that have helped you in dealing with racism on a personal level that perhaps you could share with us that may be useful um, to us as parents? You know, it, it was all part of the teaching of Auntie Margaret. And in fact, yes. I remember some women on black women on Twitter saying that uh, they they were actually discussing some of the principles. I've used them in rearing my children, but. So um, one of the things, you know, all, all children are going to face um, insults at some point in their lives mm. or bullying by, um, you know, their, their peers or others. And that mm. the, the stop, think, decide how to react is, is very important because the instinctive thing is, is, is to react on emotion. And generally, mm. when people do that, they, they do stupid things um they do things they or say things that they regret mm. so the actual stop and the process of stopping is is very constructive mm. in the it, it means that people are more likely to make a, a rational response an irrational mm. response but the other the other thing is that when we we are victims of ill treatment unjust treatment by someone or by organizations uh, the other the other thing i was taught which was invaluable was to um not dwell or wallow in self-pity and regret mm -hmm. and this this was taught to me by auntie margaret um mm -hmm. in in so many different ways i mean one she used to say um there's still so so for example i wasn't allowed to go on school trips mm -hmm. uh, or one particular school trip to france because the the children's home which i was in care couldn't afford to send children to Mm. I couldn't go and I was back class for the week mm. and had to go with younger children which I found quite demeaning and yes. Auntie Margaret said well don't wallow in self-pity there's a lot of children worse than you in fact she made me give some of my pocket money to charity you know charitable children uh, the children in Africa didn't know mm. why I was trying to do that but, mm. you know she she would talk about you know how these children were lucky to have anything to eat Mm. And, and that I shouldn't wallow in self-pity because it's a very destructive force. Mm. And um, so what she said to me was to, um, why don't you teach these children languages? Um, she wow. said, you're, you're good at languages. Why don't you teach them languages? 
you're ahead of them, you're a year ahead. You can teach them something, make better use of the time than feeling sorry for yourself. Mm. Um, so I did, you know, I, yeah. I did that. And the irony is, and two years later, I won the school prize for languages, French uh, and Spanish. Yes. And I, yes. treasure, I treasure those prizes. Um, because when, when you actually teach them, as you can imagine, you have to understand some of the concepts. And it's actually very good for, you know, your own learning. Mm. Um, so, you know, something good came out of that. that I felt um, very sorry for myself. But, mm -hmm. you know, I, I enjoyed teaching others and passing on the little knowledge I had mm -hmm. uh, to, to others. And it was a very positive um, experience. And that's the thing that I've seen with a lot of people who've been victims of prejudice, mm. uh, the mixed race or, or black people, mm. is that they, they, they can go through a process and a period of self-pity, which, which is actually very, very damaging. Mm. So, you know, you have to get yourself out of that and, and think constructively and positive about what you're, you're going to do about the situation you, you find yourself in. And mm. that, that might mean, you know, going through official channels, getting advice, getting support um, through an unpleasant experience you've had. It depends what the situation is. But mm. either, either way, that um, just wallowing in self-pity never does you, you, you any good. And, mm. it, and it's easy to say, you know, it's easy to say that. Mm. Um, but a lot of people, and a lot of people in my experience, don't do that. They, they do wallow in self-pity. Mm. And it's very, very destructive. Mm. And what you said there runs in tandem also with the idea of self-reliance. Um, and that is a tool that you or strength um, or an idea that you learnt early on as well. I just think those that they run in yeah, tandem. Yeah, well, the self-reliance was something I didn't understand. So I was asked to research it and I didn't know what it meant. But, I mean, it, it was it, I was a victim of circumstance in that... Um, mm. I, I, for example, when I, d I did get the chance uh, to go to France, I did a paper round. Mm. And one of the things I did was, well, I thought, well, if I can go and stay with somebody. So I had a pen friend and asked whether I could stay with them. And then I did a paper round and earned money uh, mm. working um, to pay for my fare to go to France. And then this French family looked after me for three weeks. So I'm still in touch with this family after many, many years. That's amazing. Uh, it is, yeah. And the pen friend is great. And that um, she, she was, it was a, a she. But it, it, either way, I got, I got to France um, through saving up this, this money. Mm. And that, um, you know, did, did something positive and constructive about it. I, I can remember approaching Auntie Margaret mm. about me wanting to go to France, travel to France. You know, visit this pen friend, and she said, "Yeah, well, you've got to earn the money, and um, <laughs> you know, you you you've got to do the planning um, to get there." And I was thirteen, yes. and I know how my son, who's he's very bright, but thirteen, I I, <laughs> I can't imagine him have, having got all the timetables for the French train, <laughs> working out was... how I was going to get from England right through to um, a place, a little town called Malio, mm -hmm. taking lots and lots of different trains and making sure that they all connected. And it was a, a nightmare of planning. Mm. But it was something I just took and got on with it, basically, because I didn't have a choice. Auntie Margaret wasn't going to do it. Nobody else was going to do it. <laughs> so I got on and did it. And the, you know, it was, went, went quite happily at the age of 13, um, with it, which was an adventure in itself, because there were all sorts of things happening on the way that were part of the adventure. But I, I did that and thought nothing of it. 
And part of that was also the times. I mean, can you imagine now? Do you think yeah, that, that, that would be allowed no. to happen? Yeah, no, no, with safeguarding. No, no, definitely not. No, absolutely. No, I mean, yeah. breach probably every safeguarding rule yeah, that's absolutely. in place now. And it's <laughs> yeah. difficult, isn't it? Because unless you have the chance to take this, uh, put yourself at risk, you know, within within reasonable limits, then you you don't have the confidence. You, you don't learn, I suppose, oh, because I mean, you know, part of learning is about experiencing problems, things going wrong and knowing what to do when they do go wrong. And Stephen Lawrence Day is coming up soon on April the 22nd, yes. and yeah. it will be the, the first Stephen Lawrence Day. Um, and this episode is dedicated to Stephen and his family and in recognition of the work of the Stephen Lawrence Trust. Yeah. Now. The McPherson report concluded that the investigation into Stephen's case was marred by a combination of professional incompetence, institutional racism and a failure of leadership. Now, given your long experience of working with all of these issues within the police service, can you talk to us about how the publication of the report in 1997 affected you? professionally and personally because obviously when what you knew all all along is verified and acknowledged that this is the case I mean how how was that for you when that report was was published well I think I think the report the McPherson report for me was a defining moment in the uh it, it was saying and there was official recognition by a judge and it was evidence-based, mm. but the fact there was a serious problem within the Met. Mm. And my response was, you know, accept that there's a serious problem and get on and deal with it. Mm. The response of some of the colleagues and other officers I worked with was um, was denial, really, and they, they were in denial. Mm. So very, very difficult times in that I... I don't know if you've seen my book. But there's a I have. Me, um, and I wrote articles. I did interviews about uh, McPherson, what he was saying, you know, what he said mm-hmm. um, about institutional racism mm-hmm. and the fact it could be intentional. But some of my colleagues were saying, well, actually, I've got a black wife. I, I can't be racist, you know. Uh, and we were in denial about the way the organisation operated and the way it treated Mm. Um, people who who were um, non non white, mm. and uh, it, it, was, it was a very difficult time. And that I think some of the articles like that police magazine said I was facing the the backlash of, of people who, who who didn't agree. But I mean, I, I was trying to explain sort of why why the organisation needed to change, why it needed to respond to the criticisms constructively, mm. and put in the measures that McPherson recommended. And ultimately, they they did, or certainly with most of them, they they put the they responded positively to to the recommendations, not positively, but they responded mm. to the recommendations. And it was it required a culture change, I think, mm. ensuring um, that people, whoever whoever ever they were, got got equal and fair treatment for mm. what was a public service. I can remember this at the time I was in in my early 20s and I also remember the uh the work that you did with uh Trident which aimed to bring in members of the black community 
as part of um, to advise on recommendations to the work that you're doing within in the police. The mm. problem with um, Trident was, mm. was not the police sort of wanting to run around with guns and things. Was the, mm. the problem with post McPherson report was yeah. uh, the police were institutionally racist and the, some of this was about the policies and practices. So what, what happened was I was in the area of murder investigation. Mm. And one of the things the, the officer senior to me said, well, we need to look at whether, you know, as to where we stand in our own department. So mm. a, a murder investigation and crime investigation. What, what, what that review showed was that if you were a black victim of murder, the, your murder was less likely to be solved than if you were white. Mm. So one, one of the things I said is, well, you know, we need to look at why, what's the case, you know, why that is the case and, mm. and do something about it. So mm. what, 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 what was revealed was not surprising in that the, um, because of the mistrust between the police and the black community, mm. is that when the police wanted mi uh, witnesses to, to shootings of black mixed race people, mm. the, the witnesses were less likely to come forward less likely to assist the police because of the poor relations mm. and the and relationship and, and because of prejudice amongst obviously some some officers. But I mean that um, the, the response of Trident, Trident was actually set up to put that right. The reason for the publicity, the community, particularly in, in the urban parts of London, where a lot of mm. shootings were taking place, was mm. to realise that I was serious about apprehending very, very dangerous and violent people. Mm. and making sure that the communities, those communities, were safer as a result. Mm. Now, not surprisingly, I received, after 18 months, huge amounts of help and assistance from the, these communities. Because mm. I said this is going to be genuinely an equal partnership. And there was Lee Jasper who was recruited to, mm. to evidence that. And, you know, I listened to a lot of his thoughts, ideas, that we followed up on a lot of his thoughts, ideas. We consulted with him genuinely. Mm. We weren't doing it as a PR exercise, we, mm. we did genuine consultation mm. and followed up on a lot of these ideas. Mm. And the Trident logo was was about um, really transferring the fear from the communities that you know the, the, the needed police protection mm. to, to the people who who were involved in very dangerous and violent crime. Mm. So they feared uh, being caught because community mm. members were were willing to stand up. Mm. Um, and and not accept and condone any any violence, mm. um, and that and the, you know it made the London safer as a result. Mm. And that's what we need now in relation to knife crime. Mm. Need the same response, uh, mm. the same principles in in relation to knife crime. Because there's a lot of young people who are very very fearful mm. of, um, of of knife crime. And I've been very much encouraged to read that the Stephen Lawrence Trust and the National Volunteer Police Cadets have joined together to develop youth-led social action projects, encouraging people to build a fairer and more inclusive society. They're trying to encourage um, young people to have a strong voice. Now, in contrast to this, one thing that I found very moving in your book was when you said that you were able to maintain your position in the police, in part based on your quietism on the subjects of racial abuse at points, not in not in terms of ignoring it or not doing anything about it, but this, you know, the stop and process and then decide what to do about it. But it's very difficult and it must have been very difficult to do that because, like you said, we do have visceral and emotional responses. 
the, sometimes the, the, the prejudice or, or the, the prejudice comments, mm. the racist comments, were, were said by my bosses. So yes. if, I'd, if I'd acted on instinct and challenged what they said, then mm. I, I wouldn't have been successful Absolutely. in challenging their racism. So mm. sometimes it was about, you know, stop keeping a calm reaction and reporting mm. it to somebody mm. else. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, the, it, it didn't always make sense to challenge things straight away mm. um, because those have been career suicide, um, you know, reactions. Mm. So, you know, one of, one of the things that I felt generally, I, I was, then mm. I, I wouldn't have been successful. Many of us, whether it be at work um, or, you know, at our children's school or whatever it may be, are faced with these difficult situations and, you know, it is very difficult to know um, how to react. And I think it's interesting that you touched on earlier that when the McPherson report did come out, some of your colleagues were not in support um, of the findings. And one of them did take the position of saying, well, my wife is black, so how can I be racist? You know, and this is something that as a community, we're quite often used to hearing. But um, obviously, it runs counter to the obvious fact that we are, you know, everyone is vulnerable to all kinds of unconscious biases. And you did mention before that um, sometimes people aren't aware of their behaviour. Um, oh, and that, that, that can be genuine. Yes. People can't, can genuinely be aware that they're not they can, can genuinely be unaware that they are prejudiced in the mm. way they're behaving. And that, that is a process of education as well. When, when the racial awareness training, which came in after McPherson, the trainers had a really hard time with, um, in, in training some of the officers in racial awareness. Mm. And the, I suppose the, the groundbreaking thing about that training, and I can't claim the credit, is mm. that a lot of young people, along the principles that I can claim the credit for, a lot of young people were involved in the, the racial awareness training um, post McPherson. And it meant that young uh, men, that uh, police officers um, had training sessions with young people uh, who, who community members who were part of them, talking to them about the impact of concerns on them and how it felt. And, and, and so much so, there was one officer in London who worked in Britain who came to me um, after, after the training and said, I wish I'd had that 20 years ago. He said, I'm mm. going to leave in two or three years' time. And I, I should have had that training. Mm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. he said, well, it was just about the empathy and the insight he got for this young person and the impact of, of policing, you know, that he can have on them. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, the shame, the shame is going to be leaving soon. And the, what, what happens is the training often only comes about in response to a crisis either the funding is given to do that sort of training, which is very time consuming and resource intensive, but it's very invaluable really in terms. Of, and and the, the, the thing I should tell you, which is very positive, is this mm -hmm. officer who I thought was, you know, was he, I thought, well, is he telling me this, you know, to be polite or does he really mean it? Mm -hmm. When he retired, he then went and worked with young people. So, you know, it, it was genuinely, you know, in terms of what he was saying, the impact on it has been amazing and enormous. Yeah, positively impact. It's so important to hear the positive stories as well. And your book did end with the fascinating story. Burglar, yeah, the, yes, the Jeans Burglar. Yes. And he also did a complete full circle. I, I mean, you can imagine, I was very shocked when I saw him. I mean, he yes. got somebody who you didn't know who tried to kill you effectively. Yeah. He had certainly had done. Yes. And then seeing him years later, 
and, and sorry, the second time I saw him was on duty in Fulham, and I was called to a school uh, with another officer mm-hmm. and um, the detective officer, and the we we told that one of the pupils had had a knife and threatened us to have their teacher, and the other teachers had taken the knife off this kid. And of course, it turned out to be the jeans burglar again. I remember talking to him, and because I, I had to sit with him and spend a long time with him mm-hmm. and his his mother, and basically he was telling, well, you know, the things aren't going to get any better for you. You're going to go to youth detention. That you're going to end up having a life in prison mm-hmm. if you carry on like this. And then he did to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that certainly after certainly eight eight years or so, he was a very very different person and and more mature. Um, but I, I felt for the first time there is capacity for rehabilitation. Yes. Because he talked about the things he'd done in prison and constructed things and the education that he'd been through. And he felt he had a future and a stake mm. in society in a way he hadn't before. I, I just felt, you know, there, there is hope. And it, it just proved to me that people can reform and lead useful and better lives with the right support and encouragement to do so. You need to hear. The positive stories as well because sometimes that's yeah. what helps you put one foot in front of the other each day yeah. and to carry on doing what you're doing and your book is definitely a part of that I found it not only enlightening but um, inspiring and encouraging. What I'd also say though is that I've learned a lot from others so um, mm-hmm. some of those things I describe as, as a coping techniques mm-hmm. as, as well because I think that's important because I mean the sad fact is a lot of senior officers or black officers who've not seen ended up having breakdowns yes. leaving the Met, suing the Met. Mm. Mm. And I think some of the coping techniques are, are very important for anybody who um, goes through hard times, faces adversity, and, and also in giving hope that these, these issues can be overcome. You know, a lot of the things I've talked about aren't just easy. I'm not superhuman by any means, but I, but I have been taught um, very good coping techniques that, that have served me well. And sharing those stories have been um, very beneficial to us all. So thank you so much, Michael. Um, Obviously, not only for sharing your stories in the the book, because that must have been no mean feat. Yeah, very hard. It's really hard. Um, But for talking to me today, I really do very much appreciate it. So thank you so much. Pleasure.